Hello and welcome to Impact Adventures. I'm your host, Steve Lamb. In case you are new to the podcast, my goal is to bring stories and information from the world of sustainable investing and responsible business to all investor, advisors, and wealth managers. I believe that with education and intentionality, we can use the vast power of the capital markets to shift the way business is conducted, focusing on all stakeholders instead of just shareholders. And for a primary example of just that concept, I refer to last week's episodes where we looked at B Corporations and the B Lab initiative. So if you haven't listened to it, please check that out. This theme is especially relevant for today's episode where I speak with an incredible leader of an impact-focused venture capital fund. She is using her power as a seed stage investor to target for-profit companies that have strong social or environmental missions at the heart of their business. Her goal is to get these companies developed enough for further rounds of funding. So in essence, she is using her platform to act as kind of the first hand up for these innovative entrepreneurs. And as such, changing the way business is done, one young company at a time. Her name is Sarah Cohn and her firm is Social Impact Capital. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah, this is exciting. So I guess, first of all, for our listeners, can you just describe what exactly does Social Impact Capital do? So Social Impact Capital is a venture capital firm, and we specialize in going in the very earliest rounds into social impact startups and helping get the companies in shape to then be led by top tier Series A and so on investors. So that's an interesting and pretty specific way of doing business where you're looking for specifically the seed round, uh, the seed stage for these companies. Why go that route? So we noticed that it was a real gap in the ecosystem and that there were a lot of companies that were that had gone on to raise, you know, been successful and raise follow on capital, but they had a really hard time getting their seed rounds raised. Um, you know, it sometimes would take them two to three years to raise their seed rounds. We also noticed that there are a lot of companies just that weren't getting funded. And our, our, our sort of theory of change is, is that there are a lot more of these impact companies out there um, and they're they're not getting funded by VCs in part because sometimes VCs pat them on the head and go, oh, that sounds like a cute nonprofit, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or the companies tend to in some ways not be legible or believable to the existing you know, group of venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the folks who are starting these impact companies do a lot of them come from um, philanthropic backgrounds? Is, is there sort of a belief and, and is there any fact to back it up that, that maybe they're just not viable as businesses and they really should be more like a philanthropy? No, I mean, they, they come from all different backgrounds. Some mm -hmm. come from a philanthropic background. Um, others, you know, it's their, they're incredibly successful entrepreneurs and it's their second company and they want their second company to be impactful. So you mm -hmm. see a real diversity in the backgrounds of, of these founders. Um, it's just that, you know, for some reason, there's, you know, there's a bias in American capitalism that doing good and profits are not connected. And this is just a very, very pervasive belief. So 
it doesn't matter so much in the later stage rounds. I mean, once once it's a company, almost any venture capitalist can look at it and see the business metrics and the profit and the revenue and value it appropriately. But these biases kind of play in when they're just ideas on napkins. And you see that's where the sort of gap and the mispricing is happening in the market. What do you think can be done to, you know, work on that bias and get rid of it? Well, I mean, the I think that it'll just be more successful venture capital funds like like mine that, you know, that prove that there's a lot of value to be had in this space. And then you, you have competitor firms sort of pop start emerging and more capital flows into the space. So typically in venture capital, these mispricings don't stick around for very long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People notice and, and dive in. Um, so let's let's talk about your firm some more. Um, can you walk us through some of your success stories at Social Impact Capital? Yes, absolutely. Probably our largest success story to date is that we were one of the very first investors in a company that's now called Prometheus Fuels which is taking carbon out of the air and making diesel, gas, and jet fuel out of it. Um, so we've been, they just became the, the world's first zero carbon fuel unicorn. Um, they're valued now at $1.5 billion. We're, it's still very early for them. So we're incredibly excited about that future, their future. Um, Andela is also another company that just became a unicorn this year. Um, we have, you know, a bunch more that are in our portfolio and a bit earlier. Um, a big one that just got announced this week was the 40, a $40 million follow-on round to a company called Totus that's working on covalent cancer cures. Um, and we're very excited about their future as well. That's fantastic. So two unicorns already. And how long have you been operating this firm? So... I started a small fund that we call Fund Zero um, with only my own money and a very small amount of it in 2016. And then our new fund, um, which is a $43 million fund, was a 2019 fund. Great. So two unicorns, only five, six years. That's very impressive. Yeah, we have one of the highest rates of of unicorns, I think, in the industry. We have a 6.6% hit rate of finding unicorns. Um, but I think it speaks to the potential of how big these impact companies can be. In comparison, the software industry is actually very small, right? So the the industries that these companies are going into are some of the largest industries in the world. And as long as you can compete on cost, because they tend to be commodities, it's an incredibly profitable area of business to be in. What is it about your process or your firm's process that why do you think you're hitting uh, with such a great uh, success rate? Uh, we we do we, we just do a ton of work. We do a ton of due diligence and we do uh, you know we do a lot of research about the most promising areas in the world to go into. Um, likewise, also our firm is structured slightly differently. So it's a solo GP fund, so it means I'm making all the investment decisions. But we work with a large variety of venture partners. We have about 55 plus venture partners, some of the smartest people in the world that all have specific domain expertise. So each deal that we work on is kind of like this collaboration um, between people that have specific domain expertise about 
the area that this company is working in and we all come together, you know, both to source the deals, to do due diligence and decide if we want to do the, the companies and then to support the portfolio companies. And it's, it's a very, very powerful model. I'm really excited that it's working so well. Excellent. Yeah, it sounds like you're bringing a lot of expertise to bear and then you're able to make the final call by yourself. Yes, exactly. So just your typical, you know, venture capital partnership that's, you know, four people, they just can't know that many things in the world or even know that many people. So that both the breadth of the knowledge of our network and, you know, we call it, we jokingly call it kind of the net that covers the world. Um, we're able to just have this very powerful firm that's fueled by the network. Excellent. And was that when you set out to found this company, was that very intentional on your part? That, that Was it very important to you that you be the decision maker? I think it just makes things more efficient. Um, and, you know, you, you have no you have no one to sort of talk you out of your bad ideas, but also you have no one to talk you out of your good ideas. Um, and I, the reason that I made the decision is that in in the venture capital literature, um, there was you know I ran I ran across kind of study after study that that showed actually that partners were detrimental to decision making, um, and so I decided to build a firm where you had the advantages of partners, where it you know it worked out to be well combined with not having partners in the places where the literature was showing that it it wasn't it didn't work very well, most of the most most of the partnerships that are successful in venture capital are saying that the most contentious deals that they do are the most successful. So when you when you talk about that, it, it talks that the partnerships actually don't really help decision making process, although they probably have other benefits in terms of sourcing and support, et cetera. Sure, sure. As a woman in this field, and especially one with the success that you've had, did that um, affect that decision as well? Was there was there an element of it that said, where you said, as a woman, I want to do this on my own? <laughs> well, it certainly does help that there I have no male partners for people to attribute my success to. I suppose. Can you walk us through your your story a little bit? How did you get to where you are now? So investing has always been my primary hobby and my primary love in life. But as my career, I wanted to go into service. Um, you know, I, I care more about the impact part of the equation, you know, traditionally. So I went into like all those people, I went into a nonprofit after college and I worked there for about four and a half years and kind of picked up my head and thought, you know, I don't really feel like I'm making an impact in the world through this. And I had, you know, I, I had a philosophy that you actually can make much more impact in the world through for-profit structures than nonprofit structures. So at that point in time, I wanted to, you know, I decided I was going to do social impact capital. That was 15 years ago. Um, and then I spent the next 15 years getting experience and studying the market and, you know, where the gaps were and what was the best way to structure a firm to both create impact and returns. And then finally, in 2016, I started um, with our fund zero. So you knew from a very early age in a very early phase in your career that this is what you wanted to do. I did. Yeah, it was um, 
it, you know, it was, it was sort of, I knew from a very, very young age that I loved investing. Um, and I never, but I'd never thought about it like a career that it could be a career. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, it was more like a hobby. And then, you know, very early in, you know, that was sort of when I was a child. And then when I was more of a young adult, I decided that I could actually do what I loved in service of the goals that I cared about. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned something that I've heard a lot on this podcast from many, many people that are working in this space, and that is that they started in some sort of nonprofit and they felt like they just weren't having the impact that they could. And they decided that they needed to be in the for the for profit space in order to maximize that value. Um, can you talk about just from your own perspective, why is that? Why do you find it more powerful to be in the for profit for good space? There's just, I know I give an hour long speech on this, so I can get quite involved, but to give a, <laughs> a <laughs> to give a quick summary, um, I think there are just some structural things with for profits that make them, you know, larger vehicles. So the first one is that um, they, you know, the bad ones tend, because there's this, you know, other measure of, of how good the organization is, the bad ones tend to die very quickly. And then the good ones get larger and larger. Whereas nonprofits, you tend to see that they sort of stay the same size almost. Um, and there's less, there's less of a, there's less of a connection between their actual performance and, and how big or small they grow. Um, and so this leads to a lot of innovation and a lot of in- ability to do innovation. Um, but I think the other the other thing is that when you work in a nonprofit, you're you're in some ways you're getting paid with the feelings of g- that you're doing good in the world. And so it can be very hard structurally for the the it can be very hard structurally for the organization to admit that there there might be other ways or more efficient ways, or maybe they're not doing. Um, that much good at all as well. So there's, I think there's just a whole bunch of structural reasons in the world that for-profits um, can actually accomplish more social good than non-profits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's fascinating. And, and, it's, and it's a big part of the messaging, honestly, behind this podcast is trying to get more folks to understand that in the for-profit world, you can make uh, very great and abundant positive change in the world. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, when I look at the sort of social impact that we've, you know, that we've already accomplished so far via our portfolio companies and project that out, I'm incredibly, I feel incredibly, you know, this is actually the goal that I wanted. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I, I do want to come back to you and your story some more, but that does, what you just said does prompt me to ask this, which is, how do you measure the impact of your portfolio companies? And, and do you report that to your investors or how does, how does that information come about and what do you do with it? We do. I'm very, um, so when I started the firm, I, I was very, you know, the impact, impact investing has been talking about measurement for 20 years mm-hmm. and they've never really come up with any standards or what have you. Um, I think that's changing a little bit. Last year, the big four finally came up with some impact metrics, but I'm still waiting for that kind of holy grail um, impact metric that the entire industry adopts. In the meantime, um, so one, in, in in Fund Zero, 
I actually didn't do any impact <laughs> metrics. And what I what I was doing in Fund Zero is I was just asking myself, well, is the core of this business a social good? And the heuristic I'd use for that is, okay, we'll pretend the most evil company in the world bought this company. Would they be able to remove the social impact component without just taking the business to zero? And if the answer was yes, then it was you know not a social impact company. If the answer was no, then it was a social impact company where social impact was at the core of the business. And that was what I was trying to do. In fund one, um, I had you know a partner join who really believed in the social impact metrics and convinced me that we should start to implement social impact metrics. So what we do is for each company, the that the entrepreneur um, come when when we do the investment, the entrepreneur comes up with the metric, which is the impact that the entrepreneur wants to see in the world, and is a social impact metric, and then they report that to us annually. Um, but it's a custom metric that the entrepreneur decides. Great, and is that part of the the process when you go to invest with them, where you say one step in this process is you have to come up with this, and you're going to have to report to us on it. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it has it has honestly been very helpful. Um, it's enabled us, you know, it's a, it's a reason sometimes that we decline to make an investment because we don't feel like the impact metric can be very rigorous. Um, and it's also caused, you know, we have sort of investments like a social uh, social network that are more ambiguous that then it's very interesting to find out well, how is the way that you measure whether this is having a positive or a negative impact on the world. Mm -hmm. Are you able to give any examples of some of the measurements that, that are used by your portfolio uh, entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, sometimes they're very obvious. You know, decarbonization is mm -hmm. a huge one. Um, extracting carbon from the air is, is one that a lot of our portfolio companies use. Um, we have a social, a social network and the impact metric that they use is they actually have a way for the users on the platform to report whether there are positive or negative impacts. And then they're going to publish the, you know, the kind of user reports about whether the social impact, the social network is having a positive or negative impact. Well, that's a very, uh, that's very opposite of the way of let's call them the major social networks operate. Yes, exactly. That's interesting. Um, well, that's that's fascinating. So that's a user kind of a user generated impact measurement. Yes, that's great. Um, so let's go. Sorry to kind of backtrack here, but let's go back to your story a little bit. Um, again, as as a female leading a VC firm, especially the structure that you have where it is your firm and your decision making. Uh, and it sounds like fun zero. Was that was that just you? Were you operating independently then? It was really just me, and I had um, uh, I had one partner that was mostly did financial modeling. Okay, great, great. So, can you talk about how rare that is in the VC space? It's somewhat rare. It's becoming less rare, um, but I think it's still you know it's women run firms is probably about less than five percent of the market. Mm hmm. Do you see a pipeline of women that are in the space in other roles that are working their way up? I mean, is there is there good news inside? Do you, do you feel like there's progress being made? 
I think that we'll end up being, I, I don't think that there's much progress being made. The numbers have been pretty flat. Mm. Um, they, you know, they, they went up for a while and then in the past few years, they've been pretty flat. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's a tremendous amount of talent, um, you know, women investors. I, I'm in a group of women um, called Transact Global. And the the sort of you know brilliance of this group is incredible um so i know that the talent is out there whether the talent is being recognized at the moment i don't know but in the end it all comes down to performance so you know once there's a few examples of women-led firms performing you know incredibly well then everyone pattern matches on that um i have to ask though just just because of what we see in the world uh, in so many different ways, if you're talking about gender parity, if you're talking about racial parity, do you think that that's all it will take is pure performance? Because it feels like those biases will still exist. And if you have a woman-led fund uh, with that's wildly successful, if you have multiple firms that are women-led that are wildly successful, those biases will still exist and they'll still there there might be excuses or reasons that are made besides the perform well they performed but that was luck they performed but <laughs> yes. you know what i mean like like what what else is it going to take cuz it feels like yes we want it to be performance and i agree with you but part of me just says it's just it's unfortunately not going to be that simple no, I mean, maybe it won't be. It would be very interesting to come back in a decade and um, ask myself the same question. But I think that I definitely have seen a lot of what you're saying on the pattern where it's like, you know, when my fund zero is performing very well, everyone said, oh, it's so early, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then they've said they, they sort of move the, the you hit the they make a goalpost, you hit the goal and then they move the goalpost. <laughs> So we've, uh, I've definitely gone through a few cycles of that. Um, and, but sorry I, to interrupt, but what does that feel like for you where, where people are saying these things to you and you say, okay, I'll prove it, I'll prove it to you. And then you do okay. it and they're like, well, actually. Um, you know, I I think that along the way, like, of course, this is what everyone that raises a fund, I think, goes through. I don't think it's, it's necessarily easy for any first-time fund um, to be raised. I was reading the biography of Steven Schwartzman, and it was even difficult for him to raise his first fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little, it's a little bit hard for me to, to separate the experience of fundraising as a woman versus the experience of just being a first-time fund manager. But I do think that in the end, performance wins. Um, I think that there are enough people that actually care about making money in the world um, and that if you have the performance, you'll be able to attract those people. Okay, good, good. I, I hope that's right. I really do. Because 5%, less than 5% is, is it's pretty horrific. And, and I hope we can get that up. One last question uh, in that vein. What about the men who are in the VC field that want to be allies for for women? What should they what can and what should they be doing? Well, I think (laughs) so. For one thing, I, you know, I've experienced a lot of very bad behavior from male VCs that I've put up with, Um, but I've been a little bit surprised um, at the other people in this industry, how quiet they've been um, Mm. witnessing this. So I think that just just kind of standing up for the right of women investors just to do their job would be an incredibly helpful thing to have happened in the career. At the same time, you know, I've also had a lot of supporters 
And, you know, I first got my start in the venture capital industry from a venture capitalist taking me under his wing and showing me the trade. And I've had, you know, incredible supporters from from some of the top people in the industry. So, you know, it's always a fight, but then there's always supporters as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think has been your biggest challenge to overcome to get to where you are now? I think it's the salesmanship of figuring out, you know, figuring out how to to sell what I'm doing to people. I'm not. I'm very metrics driven and very performance driven. And I might not always be the most natural or inspirational storyteller and, and salesman. And the job of VC is really a sales job. So I've done my best there um, and hoped that you know I can meet enough investors that are not so interested in the storytelling and are more interested in the results. Sure, sure. Going back to your process, uh, your investment process, when you're considering a company, how much does their mission affect that process? Um, You know, would you consider a seed company that has sort of a wishy-washy mission, but the company looks great? Or you're only looking at firms that have an incredibly strong social mission? Yeah, we're, we only look at firms that have an incredibly strong social mission. And very occasionally, I'll see an incredible company that I'll want to invest in, but won't have a social mission, and I won't be able to do it. But it's it, it's they're very few and far in between. I think in my entire career, there might have been three companies um, mm-hmm. that I've seen that I thought would be great businesses, but didn't have a social mission. By and large, the there's enough there's enough companies in that space that you can have a hugely successful fund focusing which is, only on them. Which is great news to hear. Are there certain types of impact that you tend to hone in on, you know, climate change, clean energy, prison reform, women's equality, et cetera, or is it just whatever comes across to your desk that, that, that checks all the, bo- the boxes from a, from a business perspective? Yeah, so we look at spaces, um, you know, we, we're constantly researching spaces that we think are important so we're prepared when the the companies come but likewise a lot of times um i joke that my inbox is the most inspiring inbox in the world because every day it sort of fills up with social impact solutions that i didn't even know existed so we've invested in a lot of those as well for example our portfolio company preact um, can stop 86 percent of the deaths and injuries from car accidents and so, of course, we we're aware that car accidents were, you know, a big, a big issue. Um, but we, I had no idea that there was a solution until they came um, and and pitched us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that's fascinating. So I have to ask, how do they do that? Because that's an awfully big uh, reduction in traffic fatalities. What's what do they do? Yeah. So it was a it was a spin out project um, from a from a DARPA consulting project that where they developed this extremely uh, sensitive and accurate sensor to actually shoot down bullets. Um, so they repurposed that into um, into car accidents. And what it actually does, it's a, it's a chip that you put in cars. It's actually free to the OEMs, uh, the, the car manufacturers, because it can replace their park assist sensor that they're using now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can tell you with, you know, almost 100% accuracy, 
actually with 100% certainty, um, at least so far, is what the data is showing, when you should deploy these advanced um, safety features. So you can change the positioning of the seat, you can tighten the seat belt. If you have more time um, to fill the airbags, you can do different types of airbags. You can do external airbags, you can do internal airbags and and kind of change the way they feel. So it there all these advanced safety measures have actually been in the pipelines um, of the path, passive safety manufacturers for years. But the missing piece was knowing when to deploy them. And that's what this chip does. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah. hopefully we start to see that uh you know, showing up in car ads uh, any day now or, or as soon as yeah, possible. It, it takes a while, but mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. have contracts now and they should, you know, in a few years, <laughs> um, you know, in three or four years, we should start seeing this in cars. Mm -hmm, that's great. So when you're, I think it's really interesting to talk to folks who are in the VC space and, and just thinking about entrepreneurs because you're in the position where especially with your business model where you're the, you're at the seed stage so you could be the first uh, funding uh, mechanism for many of these businesses and to get this seed funding must must be life-changing for at least some of them especially if they're first-time entrepreneurs you know it's an affirmation of their dreams and and it's proof that that what they're doing is is a good idea what is yeah. it like to be the person on the giving end of that well you know it's it's incre it's incredible because I, you know, I can say for certain that there's a lot of companies that are doing amazing things out there that would not ex would not exist if it wasn't for us um, and our ability to fund them. Um, at the same time, you know, you're saying most of my time is spent saying no to people's dreams, so that's never fun. And what is that like when you have to tell someone no? What kind of reactions do you get? Um, you, t you know, of course they, they tend to not be very happy. So that is always, you know, it's always disappointing and, you know, you just, the good thing is, is that, you know, that if they're true entrepreneurs, then they don't let anything or anyone stop them. Um, I've certainly got lots of no's and rejections. So in the end, it doesn't necessarily change their trajectory. It just makes it take a little longer. Mm-hmm. What was the very first investment that you made as the lead role uh, from a VC perspective? What was it like to yeah. do that? Yeah, the first investment that I made was in Open Invest that actually sold this year to JP Morgan. So I got lucky on my first one. That's awesome. And what was it like when you when you, you know, shook hands or signed on the dotted line um, to, to, to seal your first deal? Uh, it was fantastic. I, you know, it, that was one where I had done a lot of research in the space and I knew there was going to be a huge winner in, in the in the ESG, um, you know, impact investing space. And there were two companies in the space that I had to pick between them. Um, and, it, you know, I was just I was thrilled. They were a fantastic team, the best product. And, you know, it was it was great when JP Morgan later validated that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. And you work with, with so many ground level companies who are, um, you know, out there doing this work. Do you ever see yourself starting a business that's in that vein where you're not, you're not financing these companies, but you're out there tackling a very specific, uh, issue or problem? 
No, I, you know, my, my skill set is, is really an investor. Um, I, I'm just, a, I'm a fantastic investor. And I think that the skill set of being an investor and being an operator is, is very different. Um, and so I would rather invest in the talented operators than be one myself. Um, yeah, but you know, operators are much more critical to the world than investors. Um, and it's much more valuable, but I just know that, you know, I just happen to know where my skill set lies. Well, Sarah, this has been so fascinating and so interesting. Is there anything that you feel like we missed? No, I think you did a great job and thanks so much for the conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you, Sarah. I certainly appreciate it. And of course, uh, good luck with your future investments. I'm excited to hear about them. Okay. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. What a great conversation. I was struck not only by her passion for her impact mission, but her drive and determination. She's been on a 15-year path to get to this point as the sole leader of a venture capital firm, and she's making the very best of it. Picking a unicorn with your very first investment, I don't believe that's just luck. My hope is that we can share her story, and like she and I discussed, this industry is all about performance. And this woman-led firm is crushing it. So let's make sure people notice, because there's a long way to go until we've got some sort of gender parity. I want to thank my incredible guest today, Sarah Cohn of Social Impact Capital. Thank you to Rich Poehler for filling in again to cut this episode. Please follow Impact Adventures on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and leave a review. I would love to get your feedback I want to know what you like, and of course, I want to know what you think needs improving. If you know of an impact story that I need to tell, please send it my way. I'm always looking for new stories. I'm on Instagram at the Co, or you can tweet me at Slim Slam. My email is podcast at investmentnews.com. Life is an adventure, folks, so you might as well make an impact.